Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here in the Brooklyn studio with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. Welcome to Brooklyn, Emily. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's fun to have you here. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Byers, you too are in Brooklyn. I am, but not in the studio. But not Sad, in the studio. But hello, nonetheless. Hello. <laughs> this was a big week. There was a major Fed pivot, which we have to talk about, obviously. There was a lot of news on the labor relations front, because we're going to talk about Starbucks and what's going on with their unionization efforts. There was a lot of news on the sports pages with dollar numbers throwing around about Shohei Otani, who's a sports player. We're going to talk about him and his structure. There was a huge amount of news coming out of Dubai about the climate talks there. So we're going to talk about that in the Slate Plus. There were a whole bunch of other things we're just not even going to be able to get to. But this is a packed show. So it's all coming up on Slate Money. We just saw some really amazing movement in the bond market. And this is something I love to geek out about because I think as Slate Money listeners will all know, I think the bond market is much more interesting than the stock market. And what we have seen in the bond market is yields come down enormously. They're now like 10-year yields. They're like, they used to be 5%. Now they're 4%. The mortgages that used to be 8% are now 7%. Um, Interest rates are coming down. The real interest rates in the economy are coming down, um, not the overnight rates that the Fed sets, but the long-term interest rates that really drive the economy have come down significantly. My question for you is, given that the Fed just kept its rates steady and they're still high, why is that? What happened? Isn't it so crazy? Yeah. Um, the Federal Reserve came out this week. Jerome Powell came out this week um, and did nothing. They didn't raise rates. They didn't cut rates. But yeah, rates are falling because Jerome Powell and the Fed have pivoted. They're now saying they expect, they're essentially leading the market to believe that they're going to cut rates maybe even three times next year. So people got really excited and that that Markets, markets anticipate future events. And this is a form of what the Fed loves to call f forward guidance, which is basically we don't want lots of surprises. And they put out a dot plot. Elizabeth, are you a dot plot fa fan? Uh, yes and no. I pay attention to it, but I'm, I'm skeptical that it's that predictive of what actually happens. But yeah, Elizabeth, maybe you should explain first what, what is a dot plot? So the dot plot is where all the Fed governors are polled on what they think is going to happen, and then their responses are plotted on what is literally a plot with dots. Right. And you can sort of tell <laughs> overall what the directional indicator is for how the Fed, Fed is feeling at the moment. And what we can see in the dot plot is that the median FOMC voting member is now expecting that there will be three rate cuts next year. As Elizabeth, as you say, that is not necessarily a effective prediction. The dot plots don't automatically come true. Um, this isn't the kind of forward guidance where the Fed literally comes out and says, we are going to keep rates at zero for at least another two years. And that is an effective way of, you know, cutting rates and reducing expectations. They're not making any promises. They're just saying this is what we expect. But it's a massive, massive change in 
how they're communicating, how they're thinking about interest rates. Because up until now, they've they've been saying, we don't know, we might need to raise again. You know, we haven't conquered inflation. Rates are going to have to stay high and possibly even go higher in order to make sure that we tame inflation. And now suddenly they've come out and said, you know what, actually, probably there's going to be room for three rate cuts. The markets actually have priced in even more than that next year. And then after next year, there's probably going to be another four rate cuts. Suddenly, all of the talk of rate hikes has gone out the window. And we've suddenly got a lot of talk of rate cuts. And that explains why interest rates have come down. But what I don't quite understand, um, Emily, is why, what changed? What changed within the Fed that they suddenly pivoted so aggressively from, you know, higher for longer to like, oh, yeah, we've basically won. And so now we can start cutting rates. I mean, they've had a really good run of data. The the indicators, the economic indicators that the Fed watches in order to inform its decision making have been looking good. CPI has come down. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge, the PCE. Also Personal down. consumption expenditures. I think so. The target for inflation is 2%. And I think PCE is in the threes now. Don't quote me. Quote me. Felix nodded. Um, and CPI is in the low threes also. So, I mean, it looks like inflation it, it came down a ton over the past few months. And it's there's... There's mission accomplished vibes coming out of the, which, the Fed, which makes me anxious. Yeah, that's ang- that, that's anxiety um, inducing, and I'm trying to think this through in terms of the Fed's dual mandate. It has a mandate to keep inflation low and an infla- uh, mandate to um, have full employment. I think we should probably be a bit explicit about like the rationale here, which makes perfect sense. Which is what really matters in the economy is real interest rates rather than nominal interest rates. Um, the way you determine like what is the real interest rate in the economy is you take the nominal interest rate and then you subtract the rate of inflation. If inflation is coming down, which it is, then even if you keep interest rates steady, what you're doing is you're increasing real, real, real interest rates. You're basically doing these stealth real interest rate hikes. Every time inflation comes down, that's another little hike to the real interest rate. And so at some point, in order to keep real interest rates steady, even without like cutting on the real front, you need to bring those interest rates back down just to keep up with falling inflation. Right, because you don't want the stealth rate hikes happening anymore. You don't need them to happen. They cause, they cause a lot of pain. Where does this uh, put both of you on your personal dot plot scale? Are you optimists or pessimists about a soft landing? I mean, we have a soft landing. The soft landing is here, right? Really? Like, You're the, saying we've already landed the plane? I think that's debatable. The soft landing has, like, what everyone was like, we, we are in the middle of Q4 2023 now, right? And when people were talking about can there be a soft landing and people were doing these surveys a year ago saying like, in a year's time, are we going to have a soft landing or are we going to have a recession? The overwhelming consensus of economists was we are going to have a recession. And that didn't happen. And they said, and the overwhelming consensus of economists was we are going to have very much higher unemployment. And that didn't happen. The thing that did happen was we kept on having economic growth, we kept on having jobs growth, and we had and we brought down inflation. This was like the 
Goldilocks scenario, the soft landing that everyone thought was highly improbable, but it happened. So, like, a soft landing does not mean we will never, ever again have a recession. A soft landing means basically where we are right now actually happened in contravention to everyone's predictions. But we're not la- – the plane has not landed yet. I mean, the, the problems that I'm speaking of still exist. Like, Soft landing did not include like an unfro uh, super healthy housing everything market. Everything perfect, right. The soft landing that. was just like – just look at those two key indicators that the Fed is mandated to care about, unemployment and inflation. Can you bring inflation down – while keeping unemployment low. Everyone basically said, no, you can't. And they have proven, yes, you can. But we're not at inflation target yet. We're close enough. <laughs> How long do we need to see inflation drop for everybody to, I don't know, consensus basis agree that this is a, a sustainable soft landing? Is it, Emily's pointing to factors that, you know, could reverse course. So, so, so first of all, I just want to say, like, sustainable soft landing is not a thing, right? Like, a soft landing is a place. And then from here on in, we can talk about like what's going to happen to unemployment, what's going to happen to inflation. But like I think we've reached the soft landing. And the question is now, in, if we're forecasting, like what's going to happen to growth? What's going to happen to inflation? You know, are we going to have a recession? These are new questions, right? But the, the, the idea that those 500 basis points of rate hikes were going to cause a recession, I think that has now been disproven. If there's a new recession... You know, that's in the future. What I, I think in terms of inflation, you know, the war has not been won. The Fed governors have all very, very consistently saying, you know, a lot of what we're seeing in the inflation numbers right now is gas prices coming down and shelter prices coming down, like rents are coming down nationally as well. Um, and that's important and that's good, but it's not core inflation. Rent inflation is coming down. Rents aren't barely budging but rent inflation is rent inflation is coming down but in a lot of a lot of the country you actually do have rent deflation you have rents which are significantly lower than they were a year ago and that's good and that's healthy but it does raise a worrying possibility that there is like sticky core inflation in you know basic goods and services that might be harder to bring down and so the fed is not declaring victory at all but you know apropos what we talked about earlier they can still keep real interest rates steady in order to you know at at a high level they can keep real interest rates high in order to try and eradicate whatever pockets of core inflation there might still be while still bringing nominal interest rates down because of all of that success they've already had on the inflation front all right you heard it here felix think we have landed we are in a soft landing i mean do you do you not agree i don't I mean, I guess I agree. I just, it seems like with rates still high, it's still a question mark. And and the job market, I guess, is strong. But if you look at the job gains we had in November, it, it was just in three categories, government jobs, healthcare jobs, and, and leisure and hospitality. Besides that, no real job growth in November. Like, I think, I don't know, I don't think things are so healthy. But I guess but that's what, what you're saying is means, true. Right? Yes, like, it's soft. Right. Yeah, that's what soft. they wanted. <laughs> but I, I guess, yeah, it's hard to, to stop time and declare something over when we keep moving forward in the economy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because you don't we, really we're, know we're what's getting, happened. We're getting really ontological here. I mean, because it is really ontological, actually. Like, it's hard to know what's going on in the moment it's going on. So your confidence 
I mean, I buy your argument, but I'm kind of like, well, we'll see what happens, you know? Emily's got her worried pessimist hat on. Yes. But I feel like we should get her to put her happy optimist hat on, and we'll do that after the break. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We're talking about Starbucks. Yes. And and Starbucks is being much more friendlier to unions than what it used to be. This is what I read in Axios Markets by Emily Peck. And I feel like if I know anything about Emily Peck, this is something that would make you happy, right? I don't know, Felix. So I wrote this story. What is clear is that Starbucks has kind of like a little bit changed, has clearly changed its messaging around uh, the union starting as soon as the new CEO took over, starting in March when the new CEO took over from Howard Schultz. Um, Howard Schultz was famously a very anti-union CEO slash founder of Starbucks. Howard Schultz was like personally aggrieved that Starbucks workers would want to be in a union when his company treats its workers so well. Like, I think that was like what was going on in his head. And the new guy took over and, you know, he said we have to he made some statements about we have to take better care of our, our employees and at the same time, Starbucks kept fighting. They've they've had all these um, complaints filed at the National Labor Relations Board, and Starbucks is aggressively fighting them. It has a law firm, um, Littler Mendelssohn, that is aggressively fighting, fending off the union. But at the same time, it does seem to have softened its rhetoric, and it's now Starbucks is now saying they want to um, negotiate contracts with the union in 2024 and get that done. And that kind of surprised me because it seemed like this, these the Starbucks union would never get to a first contract, which is obviously quite important. So a little bit of background here. Famously, Starbucks stores have to unionize store by store, but they are slowly unionizing. In terms of the negotiation, once they've unionized, is that are they then part of one big union and that one big union can negotiate on the behalf of all of the stores that have unionized? That's really something that they have to bargain over. Right now, Starbucks is is saying we want to negotiate contracts one by one. Okay, and there's 300 
or so stores that have unionized. And if they carry through with that promise, it's going to be a, a very, very long haul. I mean, we saw how union negotiations go with UPS it takes it takes some time. But there's nothing stopping Starbucks and the union from agreeing, like, we'll just negotiate one master contract and then, you know, and then everyone will have something similar in the in the network. Like, they could do that. I'm not sure they will do that. So I guess what I'm saying is Starbucks has changed its tone and they put out a whole audit this past week saying that they're going to do even better and they're going to make it more clear that they support workers' rights to unionize and all this. But I'm still not sure, like, what that's going to translate into. Well, you know, one of the stats that came out of the story is that, you know, 40 percent of the charges filed against the company for unfair labor practices were really around disciplinary actions. And in their defense, they've noted that disciplinary actions have been issued at pretty much a similar rate for both union and non-union shops. And they're sort of using that as a defense that there is no explicit anti-union playbook for the company, which is probably technically true. But I I think, uh, you know, generally speaking, culturally, it's been very anti-union and, um, you know, the evidence doesn't look great on that front. So the NLRB found that out of the 113-odd Starbucks stores that were closed last year, 23 of them were illegally closed um, for anti-union reasons. The the Starbucks is basically saying, no, we closed a bunch of stores and some of them were unionized and most of them weren't. Emily, what was the NLRB's reasoning there and do you kind of agree with them? The gist is Starbucks closed those stores to shut down unionizing efforts. Of the 23 stores, I believe only seven or eight were actually had already voted to be in a union and the others hadn't yet. Um, so they they believe that they shut them down to discourage those workers um, from going further with unionizing efforts. And um, they said, like, Starbucks didn't give any of those workers the opportunity to work at other stores, which is sort of a sign like they just want to get rid of those people. That's the argument. It's a decision from one administrative law judge. And it looks like the National Labor Relations Board is going to ask or going to try to get a ruling saying Starbucks has to reopen the stores and try and force them to reopen the stores. I just don't think that's possible. Like, I don't think that will ever happen. But do you think do you think that the finding is broadly true? Do you think that, like, under cover of closing 113 stores, Starbucks did take the opportunity to close down the, the pesky unions? You know, I really don't know. I didn't I, I read through the the opinion from the judge and it's not clear to me. I mean, Starbucks did close like hundreds of stores in 2022 and opened some stores, too. From what I understand, it's hard to really know. What do you think, Elizabeth? Well, they also have had slowing sales, and the market has reacted to that. So th- there is a you know a plausible reason for closing stores that it has nothing to do with unionization. Yeah. Although I'm generally skeptical that you know they're not fighting it. Right. They could have been done with this union push a long time ago. They could have said, "Oh, great, we have unionizing stores. You know what? Let's get together. Let's do a master contract. And let's let's do this. Like we respect unions, and if our workers weren't organized, like let's go for it." But that is a hundred percent not what they've done. <laughs> they, they, they certainly, they certainly would never have done that under Howard Schultz. But it seems like they might be, yeah, might, might be drifting in that direction now. I think we have so. a slightly more union friendly employer verse than we did a year ago. So. You see? Happy Emily. Yay. Yay. (laughs) 
Okay, I want to take a break and talk about the most highest paid union member probably in the world. <laughs> our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. There is a players union in MLB, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And MLB, for those of us who don't speak sports ball, stands for Major League Baseball, which is a big sport here in America. And there's this chap named Shohei Otani, who is very good at playing baseball. And he just signed a contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers to play baseball for them for the next 10 years. And when this contract was initially reported, this very large number got thrown around, the $700 million. And everyone said, oh, my God, that's a $700 million contract over 10 years. That works out to $70 million a year. And people got very excited because that's a lot of money. Then, after a little bit more reporting and, and details started coming out, it turns out that he isn't actually being paid $70 million a year. He's being paid $48 million a year, which is still a lot of money. Yeah. But my um, friends who care about these things tell me that even though it's a huge amount of money and more than anyone else is getting, it is less than some sort of vague, touchy-feely idea of what he is, quote-unquote, worth. And he seems to have said something similar. He's basically saying, I didn't want the Dodgers to use up their whole payroll on me because what I really want to do is win championships. And obviously, to win a championship, you need an entire team, one person can't win a championship, and I need them to have enough money to pay the rest of the people on the team enough money to win a championship. That sounds a lot more plausible to me than the other explanation, which is that he's making a complex bet on <laughs> interest rates. <laughs> well, so, okay, so there are two separate things going on here, and one of the things that is very confusing is that people are very much confusing the two. The first question is, did Shohei Otani effectively take a pay cut from what he could have demanded in order to maximize the chance of winning a championship? And is the $48 million he's being paid per year lower than he could have demanded? And I think the broad, the broad consensus on that one is yes. I don't understand what you're saying about $48 million. My understanding is he signed a 10-year deal. Everyone said it was a $700 million deal, but what's actually happening is he's getting $2 million a year until the end of the contract when 10 years is over, and then he gets like a lump sum. The, the $48 million a year is split into two parts. There is $2 million of cash salary that is going to Shohei Otani for 
each of the first 10 years. Okay, okay? got it, got it, good. On top of the $2 million of cash, the LA Dodgers are also paying $46 million a year into an escrow account. Uh, that escrow okay. account then earns interest over the course of 10 years. Uh-huh. And then, so for each of the 10 subsequent years, after Otani has presumably stopped playing, that escrow account will then pay out $68 million a year to Otani for, you know, between, I think, 2034 and 2043 or something like that. I have another question. Yeah. I'm raising my hand. You can't see this, but it's true. The idea was to keep the Dodgers from spending a lot of money so they could spend money on other players. If they're putting all the money every year into an escrow account, aren't they spending the money? So, yes. What they are doing is they are spending $46 million and putting it into an escrow account. But the point is that $46 million, even or $48 million, if you include the $2 million of cash, uh-huh. is lower than what he could have demanded. So they're saving money compared to the, say, 50 or 60 or $70 million that maybe he could have demanded. But he was like, I will, ma- I will take less than that. I will take $48 million in order to give you more scope to hire more players and win championships. So then why wouldn't he just take it right away? Okay, so that's the second issue, Okay, which is kind of what Elizabeth was talking about, which is this whole... Um, financial legerdemain of how that forty-eight million dollars a year is being paid, mm-hmm. and what you're and how what, and what you're talking about, which is like it's being paid in the future and it's being held in escrow accounts, and he's not being paid it directly, and he's going to not get it until you know another twenty years for the final payment, and all of that weird shit. People are like, there must be something nefarious going on here. And Elizabeth, I want to. I'm super interested in whether you think. There is something nefarious going on here. I do not. The, the two theories that uh, that seem to have little hints of nefariousness are that he's, you know, again making some complex bet on interest rates, or that he's doing this because his earnings get taxed differently in California if they're retirement earnings. I think the more plausible explanation is that the values for players who are, who are you know, superstars in their industries, not just tied to team salaries and bonuses, they're tied to things like sponsorship deals that really get the value of which go up if you're playing on a championship team versus, you know, a kind of Mm. middle of the road team. But again, like we're not answering the big, we're not answering Emily's question. We're not answering the question of why is he taking a below market salary, right? We've understood that he's taking a below market salary in order to win championships. Like that, that stipulated the, the other part of the question is, why is he structuring his below market salary in this weird way? Why does the contract pay out over the course? Why does the 10-year contract pay yeah. out over the course of 20 why? years? Why? Okay. <laughs> I actually am going to take the other side of Elizabeth on this one. I think there is an income tax thing going on. That when he's not playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers, he no longer needs to live in Los Angeles or even in California at all. Sure. When you don't live in California, you don't need to pay California income tax. And that he will presumably live somewhere else, maybe back in Japan or maybe in some tax haven somewhere. And all of this money that he winds up getting paid from the Dodgers will not be subject to the California income tax that he would have to pay if he was being paid it today. So he's not only a Los Angeles Dodger, <laughs> he's a tax Dodger. <laughs> Well Dropping done. The mic here. Well done, Emily. Um, but that is Otani tax, right? That is Otani income tax. That is not 
the other tax that people are talking about here, which is the so-called luxury tax on teams that pay their players too much. Okay, that's different. That's different. And we, we and and I don't think I don't think there's a luxury tax dodge going on here. That actually makes a ton of sense to me. You don't want to pay a big tax bill for the next, you know, every year for the next 10 years, so you put it off 10 years and then you hopefully have moved somewhere where you pay lower taxes. Yes, and also you hopefully will not have seen that money eroded by inflation. So you are mm-hmm. expecting inflation to be low. Our colleague Neil Irwin made the point that if you're Japanese, you just don't really know about know of inflation. Inflation right. is something that doesn't really exist in Japan. And that, you know, you'll, you'll be like, oh, you know, I'll just take it in the future because it's worth the same in the future. In fact, it's worth more in the future than it is in the present. That's how you get from the 48 million to the 70 million is by including all of the interest that the money is going to earn over that decade that it's in escrow. I guess you're betting that the the, the inflation won't be as bad as the tax, in other words. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And and possibly if he wants to move back to Japan, you're making a long-term bet on the dollar-yen exchange rate. But, like, at the end of the day, this is all a ton of money. And, like, why does it matter that much? $48 million, $70 million, $20 million. My God, like, we should be so lucky to have these dumb problems. Well, so, yeah. So, so this is, this is the other thing that I wrote about in my newsletter this week, right? Which is that he is a hugely wealthy man already. Yeah. He's 29 years old and he's, he just came off a $30 million one year contract and he's earning, depending on who you believe, somewhere in the region of 40 to $45 million a year in endorsement deals, right? So he has plenty of cash coming in. Yeah. And this is one of the interesting things that for normal people like you and me, what we tr- what we do is we live on our income and we're worried that maybe something might happen to our income. We might get fired or laid off or we become unable to work for some reason. And then we're like, and then then what am I going to do? And then what we say to ourselves is, well, I also have some savings. I have some wealth. And if I lose my income, I can fall back onto my wealth to be able to support myself. Mm. For very rich people, sometimes that, can be reversed let's say you're a very rich person like shohei otani sure and you have more than enough wealth to be able to support yourself from day to day for the next 10 years you kind of don't need any income to do that right but you're also worried that like what weird shit can happen to wealth you know he's a baseball player he's not a markets wizard right maybe he you know goes crazy and blows it all like there's lots of stories of athletes who go bankrupt because they blew all of their money on stuff maybe he chooses bad advisors maybe the money gets misappropriated maybe he makes bad investments maybe he buys a baseball team that goes bust like there's any number of weird like people with lots of money the number one thing they worry about is what if i lose my money what if i lose my wealth and there are various reasons you know what can I trust myself not to squander this cash? And instead of using wealth as a backup to income, what they do is they use income as a backup to wealth. What he, what Otani is doing with this contract is he's basically saying, even if I somehow manage to squander all of my wealth over the next 10 years while I'm playing for the LA Dodgers, even if I lose everything and throw it all away, I am still going to wind up with a nice, happy income of $68 million a year for the following decade, and that can, you know, that's going to be able to support me. I don't need my wealth if I have that guaranteed income. Rich people problems. Man, what even? So, I- <laughs> so okay. So 
the glorious thing about this is it happens to have coincided with someone else in California winning the Mega Millions jackpot. And this person, it looks very much like, bought two identical lottery tickets at this gas station in Encino, California, with the same numbers. Now, um, Elizabeth, I'm assuming that you might have played the lottery once or twice, but you've never bought two identical lottery tickets with the same number, right? Not that I know of, no. (laughs) This is not a common thing for people to do. It's really weird. You have to kind of think through why would someone do that? And the reason you would do that, the obvious main reason why you would do that, or one possible reason why you would do that, is when you win the lottery, you get a choice. Do I want it as a lump sum or do I want it as a annuity that goes up by 5% a year for 30 years? And if you have two lottery tickets, you can literally split that. You can have half of it as the lump sum and the other half as the income. And then you kind of get the best of both worlds because you become wealthy from the jackpot number one. But you also know that lottery winners are a little bit like athletes. They have a famous history of going bust on a regular basis because they've squandered all their wealth in random ways, right? And and so then with the other half of your jackpot win, you have that guaranteed income for the next 30 years. That means that you don't need to worry about squandering your wealth because you know you're going to be fine for the next 30 years anyway because there's this other income stream that you don't really have control of and it's just going to come to you on an annual basis. Which would you rather have? This is important. Felix, then Elizabeth, you answer. If you had to choose between the lump sum and the annuity payments when you won the lottery, which are you picking? I have two answers to that. My fir- <laughs> my my first answer is I would love to do this clever thing of splitting it in half. I think that's a great that's way of doing it. That's your strategy going to be going forward. I will always buy two two copies of every <laughs> lottery ticket. No, but if I had to choose, um, I would. My my feeling is basically, if I expect to live for another. 30 years, then probably there's a lot of attraction to taking the annuity because mm. it does take a bunch of like financial stress off your shoulders. You know what you're going to do. There are tax reasons why it makes sense because the like effectively the interest that you're earning on that money accrues tax-free instead of mm. like having to do it with, with pre-tax money. And it also just means I don't need to you know, I have fewer people coming up to me and saying, you're a billionaire now, I need your money, because I'm like, no, I don't actually have any money. I'm just getting an income. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't make all of this money. So on, on the other hand, if I'm like in my, you know, 60s, right. I'll be like, I, I'm not going to enjoy this for the next 30 years, so give me the money now. Right. That's that's pretty solid. I was going to say, yeah, if I knew I was going to die like relatively soon, I would take the lump sum. So what happens if you are getting the annuity and then you die, do they pay it out to your heirs? Yeah. Um, but that, oh. by the way, that, by the way, is, is dangerous. Oh, because they'll kill you. Well, no, it's not, it's not that your heirs will kill you. You'll <laughs> <laughs> be murdered. <laughs> it, no, no, the, the, the problem is that, like, the annuity winds up getting paid to your heirs rather oh. than to your, yourself because you're dead. But, but that's inheritance of your heirs. Mm-hmm. That inheritance has a present value. Mm-hmm. Your heirs need to pay inheritance tax oh, no. on that present value, but they don't have the money to pay the inheritance <gasps> tax because they haven't received the money yet. Oh no! And so then there's you, you need to. They basically need to borrow against those future earnings in order to pay the inheritance tax. So it gets a bit complex. Yeah, and if interest rates are high, that could be costly. Yeah. 
So how about you, Elizabeth? Which which are you going to choose when you win the jackpot? My honest answer is that I couldn't answer this question without a uh, you know a team of tax lawyers, estate lawyers, <laughs> and financial advisors. <laughs> I mean, I can I can make an NPV model myself, but my inclination would be to go with the annuity. But I, I also think you know my my investment choices would be fairly conservative, so that's kind of more in keeping with what I would normally do. It's a lot to think about, and it's just. It's just baseball got us here. <laughs> you, you can just imagine Shohei Otani like sitting down with his tax and estates lawyers and just being like, this this is not a meeting I want to have. I think we should have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? My number is $11 million. $11 million is how much money Red Lobster lost, a quarterly loss for Red Lobster, an operating loss. <laughs> I do love this number. Because... They miscalculated how much their endless shrimp promotion would cost them. So the endless shrimp promotion is just you can go to Red Lobster and you can order as many shrimp dishes as you want endlessly and fill yourself up, eat as much as you want. And they used to do it, you know, at special occasions, just on Mondays, limited promotions. But then for some reason, they decided in the fall, like, we're just going to do endless shrimp endlessly. Endless, endless shrimp. <laughs> endless, endless so, shrimp. There's no end to the endless shrimp. <laughs> and they only charge $20, which, by the way, is only a few dollars more than it costs to get a salad in Manhattan right now. $20, and you can have all the shrimp you want. People went bananas for it. Everyone went to Red Lobster, only ordered the endless shrimp, they, and then they, they went, lost a bunch of money. They went bananas for the shrimp. <laughs> now they're back to finite shrimp, I assume. <laughs> no, that's the thing. They're They're sticking with it. They just raised the price from... $20 to $25, but they're still sticking with it. Um, they'll figure it out. And it, and I think people get really excited about it. I know I am. I mean, have you ever eaten at a Red Lobster? No, I haven't. <laughs> do, do you, but do it you sounds think, cool. Do you think like endless shrimp option is going to make you more likely to eat at a Red Lobster? Well, see, Felix, here's the thing. Like, I thought endless shrimp was just like literally just shrimp, you know, like endless shrimp cocktail, which to me sounds amazing. But a lot of the dishes you have to buy, like, come with you get a like a shrimp and like some rice on the side. And it's like all super prepared. I'm not I forgot, oh, you, you I forgot what your question was, honestly, but I, I don't know. It, sa- sa- it, it sounds like there are asterisks. You can't just get an endless shrimp. You need to be getting like. En- en- yeah, they're not like making shrimp, it like, rain like, shrimp over your head oh. or anything. <laughs> It's not like the breadsticks at Olive Garden. Right. <laughs> Elizabeth, what's your number? Uh, my number is 19.2, and that's a million dollars. And that's the amount of money a guy, 27-year-old named Dryden Brown, which is his real name, raised for a crypto state in the middle of the Mediterranean. That is Well, on the edge of the Mediterranean, to be like, I don't <laughs> yeah. think. Well, yeah, technically, we don't really know where in the Mediterranean. Yeah, he, he's, I, I don't think he's actually found a piece of land. But in principle, he would like to find a piece of land somewhere on the Mediterranean. Yeah, so, so the philosophical uh, roots of this thing are that, um, according to him, this crypto state, which is called Praxis, by the way, because of course it is denounces enemies of vitality who reject European beauty standards, which is, you know, not at all creepy and totally normal. So unsurprisingly, of the people who have signed up for this thing, the ratio of men to women is four to one. But the most remarkable detail, and there was a time story about this earlier this week, and I just have to read this verbatim. It says, in an undated Instagram story from inside the Praxis office that was reviewed by the New York Times, 
a man measured Mr. Brown's face using calipers, one of the main tools of phys- physiognomy, the pseudoscience of judging character from facial characteristics, and a phrenology, the discredited science of predicting mental traits by measuring bumps in the skull. Mr. Brown did not clarify in his email response why he wanted his head measured. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the, it, there are some weird people in crypto land. Well, also, this guy's only prior job is that he, he worked for a hedge fund he got fired from. And there are people giving him $19 million. Well, yeah, but $19 million is like... <laughs> Is is spare change down the back of the crypto sofa? I don't think like you're it's you're fair. clearly not going to build a city for nineteen million dollars. You you can't even buy an apartment Maybe a on Lego the, in the Bahamas. City. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Maybe it's a Lego city. This could explain a lot. A virtual city. And Wait. they needed to measure his head to find out if he would fit in a Lego city. <laughs> Elizabeth, can you explain the beauty standards part? So they're rejecting the beauty standards for themselves. No, there, there's a there's another line in the story where the guy <laughs> says that he wants to. Uh, his, his original idea was that he was going to attract crypto and tech bros to this thing by bringing in "quote unquote" hot women. So I, I think traditional Western beauty standards just basically means blonde Barbie types. The the first and last word on this was obviously Doctor Strangelove, right? Where they're talking about like life in a nuclear holocaust and how everyone's going to have to go down into mine shafts uh-huh. and and like reproduce for multiple generations at the bottom of mine shafts okay and they're like well obviously we need the important men like us in the war room we all need to go down there because we're important but then it is going to be on us to repopulate the planet and so we're going to need lots and lots of different women to carry our babies and that's going to be hard work for us. So we're going to have to make sure that these women are extremely beautiful so that we want to be having sex with them so that we can be impregnating them all. This is a whole speech in Dr. Strangelove uh, that came out in like the 1960s. And that was satire back then. But now it seems to have become, you know, an actual crypto crazy thing. It's a plan. Someone's plan. I will beat neither of your numbers, but I'm going to do the same thing that both of you did, which is have a dollar number in the millions. My dollar number in the millions is $327 million. That is the amount of property tax that Columbia University and New York University don't pay every year because they are nonprofits. And they are two of the largest landowners in New York City. And there is a bill coming up in Albany that basically is trying to enact a law that would force them to pay the $327 million that would be owed on their buildings if they weren't nonprofits, and to pay it to the City University of New York, the state state university, or the city university, rather, um, because CUNY could use that money. Sure could. That's not going anywhere. (laughs) That's the kind of thing that would get challenged to the Supreme Court, I would think, right? I mean, universities oh, no. are nonprofits. They don't have to pay taxes. That's established. There are, there are many universities that do what well, there's this thing called pilots. They don't pay taxes, but they pay pilots. And the pilot is stands for payment in lieu of taxes. Oh. And lots of places do force certain types of nonprofits to pay pilots. Um, you know, so there is a lot of precedent for that. So it can be oh, done. Interesting. Well, that should be done. That is 
extremely unfair. I mean, NYU owns what? A huge chunk of the city. And so, so does Columbia. They're just different yeah. chunks. Like one's uptown and the other one's downtown. And then they charge kids like $100,000 a year to go to these schools. So. More or less. Ish. <laughs> <laughs> On which note, I think we'll wrap up Slate Money for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for sending in your emails to sleepmoney at sleep.com. Thanks to Jared Downing and Ben Richmond for managing to cobble together a studio in Brooklyn so we could record. And we'll be back on Monday with, you're going to love this one, the one and only Paula Cher going to the movies with us and watching This Is Spinal Tap. 